listening to From Maker to Manufacturing, a podcast about what it really takes to grow a handmade business. Hey guys, welcome to episode seven of From Maker to Manufacturing. I'm your host, Sarah Cooley. On today's episode, my guest is Megan Amon. Now, if you listened to last week's Q&A episode, you will remember that I mentioned Megan a few times. Megan has been a huge mentor of mine, especially in the wholesale space. On this episode, we talk so much detail about finances, wholesale, making sure your margins are right, and I mean, lots of other stuff. We really get into it. This episode is going to be a long one. But I really hope that you guys enjoy these long episodes. I know that when I was working in my studio alone, my favorite thing to do was listen to long podcasts. So if you guys are enjoying these episodes, we will try to jam-pack them with as much information as possible. If you prefer slightly shorter episodes, just let me know on Twitter or Instagram. I really want this podcast to be the best podcast it can be for people who are making products on a daily basis and trying to sell them and trying to really scale their business. So if the episodes are starting to get too long to consume regularly, personally, I don't think it's a problem because I just kind of break them up into car rides and things like that. But if you guys would prefer 30-minute episodes or something like that, let me know and we'll try to condense these interviews a little bit. But for right now, I'm just jam-packing them with as much information as I possibly can. But fair warning, this is a little bit on the long side. Thank you guys so much for listening and thank you so much for rating the show on iTunes. We finally have a star rating that can be viewed by the public and I really, really appreciate it. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today because on last week's episode, I ended up talking a lot about Megan Amon, and I think that I start to reference you as if I assume people know who you are because you've pretty much been like my personal guru now for like three years. (laughs) But for people who don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit about you and a little bit about your business? Yes. So I am Megan Amon. I am a designer and a metalsmith. I have um, an eponymous jewelry line that I have been running for nine years. Now it's starting to feel feel really old. Um, So I sell my jewelry to stores across the U.S. I also sell it online through my website. And then in addition to running that business, I also have a website called Designing an MBA, um, which is business thinking for artists, makers, creatives. And I share a lot of the business knowledge that I've accumulated over the years um, through there and also through teaching some classes on Creative Live. Um, because when I was starting out, there really weren't any resources and I kind of had to figure it out for myself. And so the more that I can help other people not have to go through some of the learning curves that I went through, <laughs> um, the better I think we'll all be. I, I'm so I've always been so thankful for Megan because her resource when I found it initially was the the only resource I could find the first class I took of yours was your like wholesale class that was just like an ebook that you could purchase on your website oh, yeah. download and that was my first time going through 
your pricing for profit and like all of this, the steps that I've now done and redone multiple times. But when I first decided, hey, I want to start selling wholesale, what do I need to do? Megan's tools were the ones that like I stopped everything and I went back to zero and I just decided to make sure this wasn't going to be kind of a mistake from the beginning. And I think so much, so many people find themselves in a position where they're constantly reverse engineering their pricing because they feel stuck at a point at a price point that that might might not have been right for them from the beginning. So I owe Megan like so much. <laughs> that is I always think like my that's like my gift to the world because I was <laughs> so I was so lucky to have mentors when I was starting out who came to my studio and they had been jewelers who had been in the field a long time and basically yelled at me and like shamed me into raising my prices. And I did it because I didn't want to disappoint them. And so because of that, when I got into wholesale, kind of in the early stages of my business, I was actually priced appropriately. And I didn't run into some of those pitfalls that I think so many people run into with their prices. And it's because I had these mentors literally like yelling at me for my prices. And so I always, I want to like pass that along because really, if you don't get your pricing right, that kills your business. It literally will make or break you. And I think people don't spend enough time working on pricing, um, but it really is. It's the hardest thing to get right. And it is the most essential thing to get right. It can be like really scary when you're starting out because I think so many people compare themselves to just you know, whatever else is out there in your category of people you know that are your size. And Megan has this really great exercise that she teaches in her classes where she encourages you to go to like, you know, Barney's website or whatever and find like the most outrageous priced thing in your category. And it really gives you some perspective on, you know, what you can and can't charge. What what was that exercise like the first time you did it for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So I did it. Um, I was running like statement necklaces and I always use this example. If you go on Etsy and search for statement necklaces, the, um, I think the average price point is maybe like $40. If you went to target, it's even worse. Um, and then I went to Neiman Marcus and I searched statement necklaces. And the one that always jumps out at me was there was a, uh, Lon Vaughn necklace made predominantly out of plastic raffia that was $1,400. And I was like, yes, if like <laughs> Lon Vaughn can sell this plastic necklace for $1,400, that I should have no problem at my $400 price point. Um, and so that's always my, my benchmark is like, what, you know, what's your, what's the Lon Vaughn necklace in your field? What's, um, you know, what is that? And it's funny because whenever I, I do that exercise and I talk about it, people always say, but yeah, but that's Lon Vaughn and they have, they have this brand. And I'm like, well, yeah, but the reason Lon Vaughn has a brand is because they decided they were going to be a brand. <laughs> so like, you can decide that as well. And so that was, I think the other turning point for me in that is like deciding I'm going to be, my business is a brand. And so I can treat it as a brand. I can price it like a brand. And then I get to show the world that I'm a brand and that that helps kind of justify those prices in people's minds. So as a jeweler, you are kind of by default in one of the most competitive categories <laughs> that exist. But I, what I love about you is, and, and your line in general, is that there, when I walk down like the, the jewelry or the accessory aisles of like certain trade shows, it feels like there's a lot of like the same right? There's a lot of things that are like on trend and very similar. And then there's like a lot of really ugly stuff where you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know 
you know how sometimes you're in a store and you're like, who makes this stuff? That you can find them at trade shows. People make that ugly stuff and they sell it. Yep. It's crazy. But your aesthetic has always been so different and kind of and, – and just in a different direction, especially from like the current – I would say trend of the moment where like very tiny jewelry and like very, <laughs> very fine metal lines and things like that. Yeah. And you're just kind of like blowing it out in the other direction. How do you kind of handle like people's reaction to your work and has it really helped you kind of being so different? Yeah. You know, I think it really has. So, you know, one of the things is that I, you know, spent a long time sort of developing my aesthetic. I went, to art school, I got a BFA in metalsmithing. And then because I didn't know what to do with a BFA in metalsmithing, I went and got an MFA in metals and jewelry. Um, and so because of that, I had this really long time to evolve. And, and what my line looks like now really evolved out of all of the research that I did when I was in grad school. And so it, it just gave me time to really find my, my voice. And because I, I didn't launch my business based on a trend, I've never felt the need to go chase trends. It's always, this is what's interesting to me. This is what's exciting to me. You know, my, my newest collection is, is definitely not what's happening with trends because it's these big giant stones um, that I'm setting in steel. And I, and that happened because I went to India and I walked into a gem shop and I was like, what is this black and white stone in my shape? And can I have the biggest one? Um, And so for me, it's always just kind of about like being true to what's interesting and fascinating to me. And I also... I know I've I've never done like there's always the joke that jewelry is tiny shiny and I've never <laughs> I've never been good at tiny or shiny um, <laughs> so I figure there's no point there's no point in changing now and um, I think people respect you more for that because the other thing for me is that I'm not trying to build a business that's hot in this moment I'm trying to build something that lasts for decades and the only way to do that is to really refine your aesthetic and find the people who are really you know the customers who are really passionate about what you're doing. Um, And the people who love my work are going to love my work regardless of trends. When I first kind of started following you, it was primarily for all of the information that you were putting out there, you know, about wholesale. And then I kind of watched you go through this transition where you realized, whoa, all this information I'm putting out or like kind of what my brand has started to become, even your personal brand, you know, under Megan Almond, had had started to just attract your not competitors, but like, you know, people in your industry or people who are doing similar things and not necessarily your target customer. And so I watched you kind of like over the last, I would say, two years, both with just Pinterest and Instagram and even watching you make the shift to really starting to tell the story of your brand and of your aesthetic and and really stick to your guns. And if you've been following Megan, then you were able to kind of see the development of this line happen over this like trip to India and and kind of just take on this whole storytelling aspect that you didn't really need to do before because for wholesale – that's that storytelling part of your brand. It can be helpful, but it's not really so necessary. So now kind of like two years later, what what have you kind of learned the most about storytelling and sticking to all of this kind of like visual aesthetic that you've really kind of cemented in? What like what are your top tips and tricks and, and how has it helped just your general sales like on the consumer side? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the things that people forget is so important is consistency. And, um, you know, that's really what building a brand is about. And I feel so fortunate that we live in this time where we not just have social media, but we have these visual platforms. And for the first time ever, you don't have to like 
sit down and communicate with words, you can communicate visually. And I love that, that I can bring my model in and think about the story I'm going to tell, or I can create a graphic and put that out on Pinterest and, and really create a story without having to use any words, which is crazy and powerful. But you have to do it over and over and over and over again, because people need to see you a, a lot and they want to see that consistency. And I think a lot of people get bored. And I always tell people, like, if you're bored, change your hair not your brand, which is why, <laughs> as you pointed out, Sarah, before we got on the live call, that every time you see me, I have a different color hair. Um, yes, that's true. My hair changes all the time, but my brand is super consistent. And that's really intentional because I want to own that kind of aesthetic for people. If you're looking for this sort of like urban, black, white, gray, kind of bold, powerful look. Like I want you to come to me. That I'm the person that I want you to think of. Um, and so when I made that commitment to really work on that, it hugely impacted my sales. Um, the last two years, I've doubled my online sales. It's still not the biggest part of my business. The biggest part still is wholesale, but online is definitely catching up to that. Um, and for me, that was just really, you know, there's there's twofold. It's, you know, the writing's on the wall. I mean. Online is still a small percentage of how people shop. Stores are always going to be important, and I'm never going to get rid of my wholesale business because that's super – I mean, it's the way I built my business. But at the same time, more people are shifting to buying online. And the other thing that I like about it is it makes me feel more connected to my customer. You know, I, I use Shopify for my platform, and I love that – like, if, if Shopify can manage to pull an image from the internet based on their email address, you see a picture of who bought your thing. And I love that feeling of like, I'm directly connected to my customer. And a couple of years ago, I didn't feel like that. I was like, oh, I just want to send it all to my stores. But now I like this sort of we can interact on social media. We can have this dialogue. And then they, you know, they'll come to me and they'll buy something. So I think it's not just about like having that really clear aesthetic and having that really clear brand. It's also about building this really real connection. So when people buy from me, they feel like, they know me. And I've, I've had to realize over time that that's actually why people buy from me is that, yes, they like the work, but they mm -hmm. like me, which is, so I feel like Sally feels like they like me, you really like me. Um, but that's just how people buy. They want to, you know, when they're investing that much money in something, they want to buy from someone that they like and that they trust and that they respect. Um, and then they see me wearing the stuff and, and showing that on social media. And it just all helps kind of grow the business. I think that tip for consistency is so important because so many people, and myself included, Instagram, when we probably first joined, it, you were probably kind of using it personally, even if you already had your business. It was just this fun, creative outlet. Look, I can take these pictures. Mm -hmm. And so you do get really bored. You're like, I can't possibly take a picture of another candle. Or in Megan's case, I always, the one I, I see over and over is always like the coffee cup with the ring, like <laughs> 90 versions of that. And and so, but the funny thing is, every time you try to change it or you're like, oh, I'm not going to take pictures of just like, for, for me, it's usually like the production shots or like a picture of a million travel candles on this rack. But those are the ones that still consistently like get the most likes and the most engagement. And you're like, are not people tired of this by now? I always say it's a curse to have a bestseller because you get so sick of it so quickly before the majority of people in your target market have even found out about it or are just discovering it like every day. So I think it's good to have a reminder that if you're a creative person, you need a creative outlet outside of your business, like whether it's 
you know, painting or you like to change your look or you whatever it is, you need to find something because you can't mess with the formula that's working just because you get tired of it. And I remember I had this, yeah. I like listened to this interview one time with um, Anna Bond from Rifle Paper Co. And she said, my aesthetic personally has changed, but the aesthetic of the brand is is now its own thing. It's not just my taste. It has become rifle and as my tastes change more quickly she she was talking specifically about this one collection they did one year with like these darker images and it was like some kind of day of the dead like dia de los muertos kind of inspired things and she said it just tanked because it wasn't rifle and even though that was currently interesting to her as the illustrator as the creative person behind the brand it wasn't on brand and you have to start to make that distinction between the two between what you like and like what's good for the company yeah I completely agree and you know actually like my best-selling necklace has been my best-selling necklace since 2009 probably and it 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 sells over and over again and and every soft I remind myself like hey like this is this is the bestseller. This is the gateway into the line. Like you haven't shared this in a while. Promote it because, of course, I'm not excited about it. And actually, it's a necklace that I personally don't wear because it's sort of too small. <laughs> like it's so boring. It's just like one chain. Um, so I have to remind myself to like share that kind of thing. Um, but I think that's so true about dividing out like your personal aesthetic from your brand aesthetic. I was talking to um, someone I know who's a painter, and we were talking about doing a trade one of her paintings for some of my jewelry and she goes well you know she's like I know you're really into like black and white and gray she's like but like obviously I you know my paintings are color and I was like no my brand is black and white and gray and I I love black and white and gray and that's sort of my default color palette but like my house has plenty of color in it I've got paintings my dining room wall is painted dark red like I'm not averse to color but my <laughs> brand is built around this very specific color palette and right, when you just jump in and throw something crazy in there, right. it really throws people off. I think people need time to evolve with your line. And so actually my jewelry line evolves very, very, very slowly. And that's part of my creative process. But I think it then makes it relatable for your audience when you throw out something. And I've done this because I do. I get bored and I, this is the lesson that I need to learn every time I get bored. I'm like, let's do this. And people are like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> and actually, like your your wholesale accounts, they are the best for, for like keeping you in check because they're like, this is weird. I, I don't get this and my customer's not going to get it. But like, oh, this evolution of the thing you've been doing. Yep, I get that. I'll buy that. So it, I think that's one of the other advantages of doing wholesale is it kind of keeps you in check because your buyers are not going to lie to you. Like if it's not working, you're going to hear about it. And if they're like, where did that thing come from in left field? You're going to hear about it from your buyers. I think when you're doing wholesale, it's so important to remember that you need to talk to your buyers and not just at the point where you're like, hey, are you ready for a reorder? Because they do have so much information that they can give you, but they're not just going to like call you up out of the blue because they don't have time for that, right? They're not going to remember like, hold on, I need to give Megan some feedback real quick. Let me take 20 minutes out of my life and call her and tell her what's working and what's not. But if you check in with them, they're more than happy usually to like give you that feedback. It's so it's such a relationship business, but so often we're like, oh, I haven't heard from them. Well, they're busy running a store. Maybe if you reach out, talk to them, they'll let you know what's going on. 
Right. It's always amazing. Like just send a quick email, do quick phone calls, something and, and just keep in touch with them. And then even asking them at shows, you know, I remember when I got started, I think even before I did wholesale, someone told me this stat, like, oh, if you look at, you know, the amount of days that a show is open and the average number of booths, like the average buyer has 30 seconds per booth. I'm like, yeah, that's not true at all because they're going to not look, they're not going to look at 20 to 30, you know, booths in a row. And if they like you, they'll spend half an hour in your booth. Like there's, so it's very much like, yes, you need to acknowledge that to get them in quickly, but they'll spend time. And so your buyers in your booth, you know, even if you forgot to email them all the last six months when they're in your booth, ask the question, Hey, how did it do? What's working? And, you know, I also have a really liberal exchange policy with my stores because I want stuff in the store that's selling. So if they have something that's been sitting on their shelf, send it back to me. I'll send you more of what's been selling because I know that someone else in some other city and some other state in a different store is going to sell that thing that comes back to me anyway. And I never want products sitting on a shelf that's not moving. So I'm, that's the other thing with buyers is, you know, when you have that really liberal exchange policy, I know what's not selling because Mm -hmm. it comes back to me. Hmm. We tried, we tried that and I was totally open to doing that with one of our stores that I knew they kind of took in one of our collections that was more expensive. And then after a while I was like, listen, if this isn't working and you want to trade this all out for travel candles, send it back. We'll, we'll, we'll send you the other stuff. The funny thing was they just never sent it back. We never sent them the other stuff because we hadn't received the stuff that they were going to send back. But like, you know, people still get busy, but I think that they, at least I hope they still appreciated the gesture, but it wasn't just a gesture. I was like, yeah, send it to me. But then they never sent it. Does that ever happen to you? Yeah, well, and it does happen. And I will say that, like, I I tell people about the return policy or the exchange policy way more often than I actually have to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it does become a really powerful sales tool, especially for your more expensive pieces. You know, for me, I always want a store to buy like one big statement necklace, not because I want them to spend more money, but because it really anchors a collection in a display case. And I personally know that if they get it in the store, especially if someone on the sales floor wears it, it's going to sell. But when you start to get up to that higher price point, stores get a little nervous. Mm -hmm. So that just telling them like, hey, try it out. If it doesn't sell, I'll take it back. We'll swap it out for some cheaper stuff. Um, that usually gets it in the door. And it's usually it sells then. And then they're like, oh, no, I need more of the big one because that sold right away. So it's one of those two where the more you work with stores, the more you know what works and helps sell right. your collection. And I think that's one of the other things, too, is that when you're starting out in wholesale, you're so afraid to like share your opinion. You're like, oh, I, I, like I know, especially because I was very young when I started and my buyers tend to skew older. I felt like I was giving them all of the power and it was just like, yes, please like give me your money. Like I don't like, but now I'm like, you know what? Like they, they look to you as the expert on your line and the expert on your collection. So being able to say, these are the best sellers and you know what? Like you're going to sell more of this, but you should really bring this necklace in because it's going to anchor the collection. It's going to draw people in. Um, That really, really helps. And so don't, don't be afraid to be the expert on your own collection and to share that opinion with buyers. When, I talked about this a bit in the last episode specifically because I had this experience when we were working with Nordstrom in which the order that they placed, I knew when I looked at it because they only brought in one cent of like our larger size candle and then four cents in the travel ones that if they brought in the same four cents in the larger ones, the whole thing would have done better. 
But I was like, well, they're the buyers for Nordstrom. So like, I'm not going to say anything about it. And like, lo and behold, it did not great. Like our sell through on the travel candles was phenomenal. You know, we had like over 70% sell through, which is really, really good. But adversely, our sell through on the, you know, $49 single fragranced candle sitting by itself with no marketing support from a brand no one's heard about had like 23% sell through. And I wanted to die because then they came back and they were like, hey, can you take this back? And I was like, no, I can't. That would literally bankrupt me. And thankfully, I hadn't signed a contract saying that I was required to take it back. So me saying, like, of course, they're going to ask nicely because, like, they can. Right. And I totally was within my right to say no. Did that damage my relationship with them? I don't Time will tell. I have no idea. But, you know, thankfully, I knew it would have done better if I had kind of spoken my piece. I wasn't trying to get more money, even if they had, with the same dollar amount, same number of units, diversified the SKUs, it right. would have done better. And I, yeah, knew that. And I think that, right. But you start to, you build up buyers in your mind as like these people who have so much power. And I've learned over time, that's so bad for business when, when you let that happen. And it takes a while to get comfortable with it, especially when you get into something like a bigger store. But it really is so essential to be like, you know what, this is not like a some kind Mm -hmm. of adversarial power relationship. This is actually, we want all of this to be mutually beneficial. And so I'm telling you things that are in your best interest, whether or not you take, the buyer takes the advice is totally up to them. But my job is to give them the best advice possible. So now I I remember last year in the winter, not last year, it was this year. Wow, this year is just (laughs) flying by. But last January, I reached out to Megan and I was like, hey, are you going to be in New York for New York now? Because it's usually the time of year that I see Megan. And Megan said, no, I'm not doing New York now this year. And I almost had a heart attack because <laughs> Megan is like the advocate for trade shows. But more has she's like become just like the advocate for for wholesale and like just growing your business in general. And she was like, I don't think it's worth it to do this show So seeing as how that probably shocked a lot of people, I'm curious how your buyers felt, you know, when you let them know you weren't going to be there, kind of how did this last season go for you? You know, and I know you're not going to do it again this summer and not again next winter. So this is obviously something you're kind of like, okay, this is working for me. I'm saving money, you know, can talk to us a little bit about that decision making process and how it worked out. Yeah. So, so first of all, I have to say New York now, back when it was New York gift was my first trade show, which is crazy in and of itself that, that I just like jumped, I just right <laughs> into the deep end there, like no preamble, just right in. Um, and it actually was a fantastic show. And so I would not have the business that I have today without that show, like hands down, bar none would not exist. Um, and so for, from 2008 to 2015, I did that show twice a year. Um, um, I started in handmade. I did handmade twice, and then I moved to Axonon Design, which is where I was. And that, so that's another thing. Like by choosing to not come back to the show, I gave up my spot in Axonon Design, which is a really hard section to get into, particularly as a jeweler. Um, but what I had found, I found a couple of different things that were happening. And, and one is just that the last couple of shows, I felt like the the buyers were down. Mm-hmm. And you get to a point. So like, there's that, and then you get to a point in your business where 
more of your wholesale business becomes about nurturing your existing accounts than it does about picking up new accounts. So I was at a position where I didn't really feel like my growth goal was not in my wholesale business. My growth goal was in my online sales. And so it made sense for me to like really look at the bottom line and think about like, is this the best use of my money? And what I was also starting to notice, I think, you know, stores, people forget that stores operate on such slim margins. Like they think, oh, they take my stuff and then they mark it up to 2.2, 2.5. Like right. they must be raking in the dough. Dude, it is so expensive to run a store. Like I more power to those people because I could not operate a business on those profit margins. Like, I mean, let's face it. Product businesses have slim profit margins and the profit margin in a retail store makes me like have heart palpitations. (laughs) So like more power to them. So they're always looking for ways to cut costs. And what I was noticing with a lot of my stores is that some of them weren't going to trade shows every season. Mm. They're going every second show, every third show. And to do their reorders, they can just stay home and do that. Right. And I thought, okay, you know what? I've spent a lot of time and energy over the last two years really fleshing out my online website. What if I do an experiment this year? The last however many years I've been doing three to five trade shows a year. What if I do an experiment this year where I scale it as far back as humanly possible and focus on sending buyers to my website. I installed um, an app for Shopify called Wholesale Hero, where buyers can log into my site, see wholesale pricing, buy from there. Um, and then the only trade show that I decided to do this year was the American Craft Council show in Baltimore. And I did that because the year before, I made as much money at that show as I did in New York. And that show cost me a third, a quarter of the price. Mm-hmm. It's two days instead of four. And, you know, I live in Pennsylvania. New York is an easy show for me to get to anyway, but Baltimore is basically in my backyard. I actually used to teach down there while I was still living in Pennsylvania. So I, that's a, it's just such an easy, doable show. So I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to do that show and that's it this year and just see what happens. So obviously I don't know yet because I'm, we haven't gotten to the summer show season, right. so it'll be very curious to see how this develops. But the winter show season um, was the the gamble paid off. I wrote more in orders. You know, buyers who wanted to see me in person had to come to that show. They had to write the order. They couldn't put it off. We just did it. Um, and and then now I'm starting to build up the online sales. And so what I'm doing over the summer is doing this really concentrated postcard mailing, catalog mailing, emailing my stores really pushing the website. And we're going to see how that goes. I'm already getting stores starting to order on there. And actually, because my new line is one of a kind, every stone is unique. I'm finding that stores are really liking that because now they know exactly what stone they're getting uh, versus when they order a trade show. It's like, oh, maybe I'll get sort of a stone like this. There's a lot of variation. Um, So, you know, it's this year is really kind of a big experiment. But for me, that's sort of what what my business philosophy has always been is this really like try it and see. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this year is try it and see. And if it doesn't, if I end up not liking the way the numbers look at the end of the year, then I'll, I'll go back to New York. You know, I always loved doing that show. It was actually kind of a heartbreaking decision to not go (laughs) Um, because emotionally I love that show, but running the numbers, I thought, you know what? It's just, it, it wasn't quite working in the way I needed it to. And so I thought, Let's take a year off and just see what happens. Had you done a show yet with the Contra Collection? Had buyers seen it in person? 
Yes, they had. So I had actually done two shows and then a third. So I did um, the buyers, it used to be buyers market. Now it's the American made show. I did their show in Dallas. That was my first show with the Contra collection. Then I did New York last August. And then I did um, the American, the American Craft Council show this past February. So I've had three shows with that new collection. So buyers have seen it in person. But, you know, it's also one of those things where, like, that collection launched online first. And people have been buying that collection online without ever seeing it. So I thought, you know what, if my retail customers can take that leap of faith, maybe my wholesale customers can too. And I actually just had a new store that's never met me in person Mm -hmm. place an order for a number of those pieces. So it's one of those where I invest a lot of time and energy into my product photography. Um, it's very, if you, if you follow me on social media, you know that. So not just shooting the product, but really shooting the product on the model, which I think for jewelry is super essential. And so because I'm investing all of that energy, that kind of is taking the place of trade shows. And actually my other summer project, um, is, to work on starting to put more video onto my site where I talk about the, my jewelry, talk about the product in the way that I would say at a trade show. Let me demonstrate how this necklace works. Let me show you how it moves. Right. And so that's kind of the other reason that, I, you know, by taking the summer off from shows, I can devote my time and energy to doing that. So that when I send buyers, what I really want is when I send buyers to my website, I want them to feel like they're interacting with me like they would at a trade show. That's a great tip. And I think that the, the, what you said about the Contra collection being, you know, individual stones and the fact that the stores almost get more control that way. I think that that, I mean, it totally makes sense. So this Shopify app that you installed, I'm super curious because I've been looking at possibly like all the different options and a couple of friends that I have, um, I know basically just made separate Shopify stores essentially. Um, but Does this allow you to collect payment ahead of time or like does it or control when the credit card is charged or is it charged at the time of ordering? How is it kind of working versus how you would normally process a wholesale order? Yeah, so that that is the one thing that's different about it is that it, it is processing the credit card right up front. So the stores aren't getting the benefit of net 30. And because of that, with my existing stores, I'm not forcing everyone to order through the app. So they can actually, so I, one of the, the decisions that I made was that I was not creating a separate line sheet anymore. I thought, this is ridiculous. It's all on my website. My stores are going to my website anyway. Like I'm done making line sheets when I can just update my website. So what it means is that even if a store doesn't want to buy, they still get the login. They can go, they can log in. They can send me the order just by email and Mm -hmm. I'll send them an invoice and we'll do traditional net 30. So that's how I'm kind of working with that because that's how a lot of my stores have been ordering anyway, but they still have the option to do that. And the reason that I picked Wholesale Hero is I looked at all of the apps and I thought about doing the separate Shopify store thing, but then because I have the one of a kind pieces that was starting to get complicated. Right. Um, And so what I liked about Wholesale Hero is they're the only app that I found that doesn't just give a blanket percentage discount, you can actually set individual wholesale prices. And because I use a, an approximate 2.2 markup, that's really important for me. Um, so what's nice is like you can set a default wholesale discount. So if you forget to go in and manually set something, it's set up, um, but then you can go in and manually change so that when my stores log in, they're seeing the exact wholesale price that they're supposed to be seeing. And so that was why I opted for that app. And it's a little bit more expensive for that option. It's $50 a month, which is not cheap. When you compare that to the, you know, 
12, 18 grand a year I'm spending on trade shows, it's actually really <laughs> affordable. Um, That's so fair. it's one of those, you know, all, all, re- all kinds of relative things. And this summer, you know, one of the other things that I'm doing, again, these are all experiments, is I'm actually um, going to do some launches where, with new one-of-a-kind contra pieces where I put them, make them available just to my wholesale customers first. So they won't go into like the main product pages. They'll go into a separate page and I'll give my stores a couple of weeks of preview time so that they can actually buy some of the stuff first before it goes out to my retail customer. So that makes it a little more exclusive to my stores too. So it's all sort of an experiment to see how it works, particularly with the one of a kind pieces. But you know, the fact that stores are starting to use it and the other beautiful thing that I'm noticing with the online wholesale ordering is the stores that are using it are writing bigger orders than they would otherwise because it's like, oh, push the button, push the button, push the button. Oh, well, it's all in my cart. I might as well just buy it. So it really does encourage stores to buy. And I think one of the things that we always forget is like the more product a store has in the store, typically the better it sells. You know, just like your candle example, if they had put right four SKUs instead of one, it would have merchandised so much better and looked so much stronger. And it's the same thing. You know, a lot of stores at, 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 a whole, at the wholesale show were buying like one Contra ring and one Contra necklace. It doesn't give the impact. But then when they're online and they're like, oh, this one, this one, this one, this right. one, because they see how different the stones are, that's going to make it more interesting in the store too. And then it's going to sell better. Right. And they can see then also like, oh, these are going to look good together. I would, they can more like envision the merchandising. Right. Um, right. It's, it's, it's really like being able to move stuff around on a tray when you're at a show. That's so great. I'm really excited to follow up with you after the summer because I'm curious if you if you do get the whole video thing done. I know how difficult it is to like put all the stuff in production. Like this is an idea, but if it happens, I think it would be really interesting to see kind of how buyers and even just your regular e-commerce customers right. engage with that because I think that there is such a interestingness to your pieces when you're demonstrating it especially for like I love I always love the one where you're like I can just ball it up and throw it in my bag and it's not going to get damaged and (laughs) that's like you know it's such a good visual for someone who travels a lot but wants a like just to have one piece of jewelry that's lightweight the fact that it's so lightweight but it looks so big and heavy I think you know I think it should be really it'll be really really interesting I'm super excited for you so I think it's gonna be really fun on the note of like, you know, this whole video demonstrating thing, I've always been curious because your jewelry is so different and people do usually have a couple of questions that you are able to answer at a trade show. Have you, what have you kind of done as far as like employee education, salesperson education? Do you ever go to visit your stores or do you send them things like frequently asked questions or tips or like how do you kind of we're starting to run into that a little bit with the wooden wicks because it's different it's not by any means more difficult but if people don't know what to do then they assume oh this doesn't work it's broken and then they get upset and we've gotten one or two emails from our stores that are like oh people say it's not staying lit and I'm like well you have to pinch it there's like directions on the box and on the bottom of the candle but if you don't read them or you don't know then you you don't do that so have you kind of educated or done any kind of buyer salesperson education for your line so you know what's really interesting about that is that I haven't but the way that I combat that is I think it's so funny that you were just like oh I remember your story about like I crumpled it up (laughs) and like put it in a ball and so that's actually been my method of buyer education is rather than explain I try to be very storytelling 
storytelling and the way that I present things because human brains are wired to remember story. They're not wired to remember information. And so I can say it's lightweight and durable and it's made of steel and they're like, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, here, <laughs> let me like show you, like pick yeah. it up, drop it, you know, that's memorable. And then they turn around and that's what they tell their staff. Like, Oh, do you see this? And actually as a result of that story, I tend to see my buyers wearing my jewelry at a lot of trade shows because I'm their default travel jewelry <laughs> because they remember like, Oh, it's so easy to travel when Megan told me she showed me. Um, and so, you know, I think that in that case, like, what's the story that gives you like that really emotional response it actually works better than any kind of training um but i do think in, in you know in your case like you there might need to be some more of <laughs> some more training but i do really think that um you know memorable stories are a way to combat that and actually one of my all-time favorite business books not one of my all-time if i could only recommend one business book um it would be made to stick by chip heath and dan heath and what this is is it's an entire book based on how how to make your ideas memorable and how to make them sticky. And so they go through all of these principles about concreteness and emotion and storytelling. And so I always think about how can I apply those principles to my business to make things new memorable? Like there's a reason that the Contra collection is called the Contra collection and not here's a bunch of dendritic opal rings. Um, I wanted to be really concrete and memorable about that. And, you know, and the same reason that all of my necklaces, you know, outside of that collection are named after women. It, it's not, you know, SLN318, it's the Audrey necklace. And so really thinking about how you can make things memorable, because when you do that, it just filters down the chain. The buyers go, oh yeah, right, this is a thing I have to tell my staff because it's now it's in my head. And so I always think about, I have, I have made to stick on audiobook. I listen to it all the time. I've been in my arsenal for years and every so often I just go back and re-listen and check in um, because really that's what it's about is like how do I make sure that my buyers or my customers or whoever are repeating this story and and starting with it being a story is the easiest way to do that. So I want to talk a little bit about like go back a little bit with how your line has developed because you're the kind of person who's not afraid to try new things even when they're totally outside of your normal wheelhouse but you're also the first person to say, this isn't working. We're just going to kill this. So because I've seen a bunch of experiments that you've done or whatever. How do you make that decision? When do you kind of know it's not working? Or how long do you give a new collection or a new idea before you're just like, whoa, we got to 86 this because it's cannibalizing other sales? Yeah. So the first thing is like my two criteria are like, are, is it making money? And like, is it a pain in the ass? <laughs> And so those are really like my two things that I look at. So, and, and really like how they compare to each other. So like for the amount of effort that it takes, whether that's production or selling or whatever it is for that amount of effort, is it making me enough money? Um, and so I might get excited about an idea, but I also have a tendency to get unexcited very quickly. Like, <laughs> yes, this is so cool. Oh crap. Now I got to make like 20 of it. And if I have to make 20 of it and that 20 makes me like a good chunk of money, you know, a, a grand or a couple grand or something, then I'll probably keep making it long after I'm bored with it. But if that 20 something makes me like a hundred bucks, then that's usually when I kill it pretty fast. And so that's actually for me, the reason why I always keep coming back to jewelry is because I just intuitively understand how to like maximize the perceived value and really get the most profit margin out of that. And so that's why like, 
there's like I said, my bestseller has been in my line since 2008, 2009, something like that, because even if I'm bored with it, like I know it's profitable <laughs> and if I have to make it again and again, or if I have to pay someone to make it again and again, it's cool. Cause it's making me money. And so really that's for me, it's like this level of like boredom money and like how much of a pain is it to do? And so I'm always interested in trying new things. Um, but I also, you know, I'm not, for me, there's like no, there's no sense of failure. Um, if something doesn't work, it's not like, oh, I failed. I'm like, oh, that was a cool learning opportunity. Let's move on. And I've had plenty of uh, cool learning opportunities in my business. So it's really all about like, okay, what lesson did I learn here? Um, let's move on. And, and I don't know, I just, it's that, it's really like that, like kill your darlings thing. Like if it's not working, it's gotta go. And at the end of the day, like I'm not running a charity, I'm running a business. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's so true. But I think I think so many people, it's easy to just be like, okay, well, I have to stick with this or I don't want to go. I don't want to keep having this back and forth. And I think that once you have a good understanding of your profit and all, you know, all of your margins and really knowing what they are, not because I think sometimes I'll do the calculation and like it's I know it's not right because I know I'm not being 100% honest with myself about certain things. Like, let's say, including the cost of shipping in all of your materials costs, including, you know, the cost of labor or redoing your labor calculations frequently to make sure they're still accurate. Those kinds of things, before you know it, or if you've been using the same labor multiplier for like a while and you haven't changed it or you haven't checked to see if it's right, we redid it like a little while ago and it was twice what I thought it was. And that was only the difference between a dollar versus $2. But you're talking about adding an extra dollar to the wholesale cost or the, the whole, the, like the cost of your good. And that, cha you know, that changes your profit margin real quick when you're selling things that are not $300, but rather right. you're talking about a single item that now went from like being $6 to make to being $7 to make. That's a big difference. Right. That's a lot of money. And so it made us rethink, A, okay, how can I get it back to where I thought it was going to be? Or, you know, for the time being, leaving it where it is and understanding. But then you're able to look at where can I save money? How can I maximize this process? How are we doing it now? And how could we do it differently to make the time that I have my employees in the studio more effective? And I know that your line has kind of developed you know, in a way now where it is becoming more of like, it's more of an assembly line process because you've got these, you know, units that then get hooked together to create your different mm -hmm. styles. So how have you had to like change your process versus like when you first started and it was like, oh, I'll just make this necklace and then I'll make this other one. How is it different now? And what do you think is like the most important thing people need to think about when trying to maximize their time if they're still physically the ones making the thing? Yeah. And, you know, so what's really interesting is that from the beginning, I actually really did design my line to be very production efficient. And part of it is just because my brain thinks in units. So my production line really evolved out of like my interest in textiles and like repetitive pattern. And so because of that, I naturally gravitated towards this idea. And what I think where a lot of people go astray is like, they design something and then when they go to design the next thing, they start from scratch. And I almost never do that. I design something and then I ask myself like, okay, what are the 12 variations of this one thing? So like I have this one link, 
what are all of the variations I can do with that one link? And so because of that, first of all, like I've set myself up so that I can make, I don't have to keep a lot of inventory because I can make anything in my studio as long as I have certain gauges of wire in stock. So it's a very efficient production process. But it really begins, you know, a lot of times getting better at production doesn't start with streamlining your production. It starts with going back to your original designs and asking yourself, is this really going to lend itself to production or is it more of a one of a kind thing? And if it's a one of a kind thing, it needs to, the cost needs to reflect that. And that's the case with my Contra collection is every stone is different. You know, there's still a system that happens, but Mm -hmm. it takes more time and consideration and the prices are higher and it reflects that. Um, and so really thinking about how can I do that? And then even like building recipes. So so I had an employee that worked with me for a long time. Uh, I don't have her anymore. So actually right now I'm the one doing production. But I have this entire recipe book of like, okay, I have to make this necklace, open it up. I know that it gets like three silver links and here's where they go. And then this is how they go together. So thinking about like if if you weren't the one to make it or if you woke up tomorrow with amnesia, <laughs> Could you make it again? (laughs) And like, what would you need to know? And so having that kind of recipe book is the other thing that's really key in terms of like keeping production streamlined. But the fact that, you know, I can create stuff out of these units and the more things you can reuse in your Mm -hmm. making process, the cheaper everything's going to be because you get to buy more in bulk. And that's sort of the other secret is like, you know what, like, if I can use this, whether it's the same box or the same link or the same ear wire, whatever it is, if I can use the same thing for 20 things in my line instead of one thing in my line, it immediately makes it cheaper. I think people get they – don't, they don't know how to like foresee the fact that the prices of certain things are going to become less when you increase your volume. You're just looking at like, oh, you're buying this much right now. Oh, if I have to make this many of them, it's going to cost this much. Well, hold on. First, add up. If you're going to make this many of them, like 100, how much in total of X material will you need? Does that decrease your price? It probably does. And then kind of thinking about it that way. So, you know, being really honest with yourself, just like – right total transparency with yourself because looking at numbers is scary it freaks me out on a regular basis sometimes when I redo them and but but it's necessary because otherwise you're just you're really in the dark right you're sitting there like why is there never any money in my bank account right and there has to be a reason and it's not your Starbucks habit trust me there's something bigger if you're really like you know yeah. Always not in, you know, always in the red or feeling like you're very, very close. So make friends with an accountant. Sit down with somebody who can look at your books, who can help you. There are some great, like, free mentorship programs um, that I think are super important to take advantage of because in business, a lot of this stuff is the same, right? Regardless of your industry, when you're talking about the money side of things and trying to maximize it and make it efficient, it's really, it really is the same. So I think it's really important to, to understand and get comfortable with those numbers and figure out, like, right, am I making money? Is this thing? And you have to be brutal about everything in your line. I always say, like, there is no room for a loss leader. Like, it, it, can, it cannot exist in, right. in a maker manufacturer business. Like, a loss leader is a loss, plain and simple. Right. Um, and so there's no room for that. If, I don't care if it's your most popular thing and you sell – 100,000 100, of them every year because, hey, why would you want to 
go through all that effort to not Mm -hmm. make any money off of something. To me, that's just not worth it. So really being, I agree, being brutally honest about like how much, you know, how much profit on every single thing. And then, you know, knowing too that like your things are always going to cost more than (laughs) you think they're going to. Like you think like, okay, like this is how much money my business needs. And then suddenly you're like, ah, crap. Like I forgot this and I got to overnight ship this or, or like, oh, you know what? Like I ran out of postcards or I did this or that. There's always little things that come up. And so it's really just so important to like check in with those numbers all the time. Right. And there's so many extra expenses. And for me, like for us in the last year, what has really been the thing that has been that feels like it's constantly killing us is that there's not enough margin to cover our operating expenses of rent and payroll payroll which now has become our highest monthly expense and I'm not even paying myself half of what I pay both of my employees but still it's more expense it's just where we're at right now it's okay don't don't right. cry. It, happens. It, it will be okay I rent a room in someone else's that. house for $200 a month like I'm surviving it's okay it's cool I've been there too. <laughs> but okay so that's where we're at right so our general operating costs of like okay your Shopify account, your ShipStation account, your inventory management system, all these little monthly charges, right? Even my like, what do I what do I pay monthly to like Adobe to use their creative suite? Okay, everything, right? It adds up. Our monthly break even dollar number is over five grand. Yeah. Then the problem comes where then that's not including regular materials buying for our raw goods, okay? Then when we have to order something big in bulk, like new boxes, um, a pallet full of glassware, things that are regularly over, fu- over four figures, right? They're under $5,000, but they're usually between two and $3,000 every time I have to order glass, every time I have to order boxes. Actually, some of our boxes, sometimes it's like 10 for the more expensive ones. 3000 of our black boxes is ten grand. That's horrible. Yep. I never have 10 grand in the bank ever. I never I rarely like I'm lucky if the business has over four figures in the bank on a regular basis. That's not great. I know we're still like a super startup. I know we're not doing we're not doing that great. But when you don't have access to capital, when you don't have access to credit, right? Like I've had situations where we've just had to go to my parents because there was no other option. And I read this article yesterday from, hmm, was it in Forbes? I don't remember. I will put the link somewhere in this um, <laughs> in this description. But it basically said, is small business, is like online small business lending the new like shorted housing market? because there are so many really sketchy they don't look sketchy online lenders that are will give you money right i'm talking about cabbage on deck capital all of these things right right that don't tell you what your apr is before but you need you need that chunk of cash right you have nowhere else to get it from and then you're paying like your apr they which they don't calculate it as an apr they tell you oh it's a 12 percent fee on this money so you get a flat look right but you have to pay it back in six months so your apr ends up being like 50 percent 60 percent 70 percent depending on how much money you take 
if it was calculated as an actual APR, which you would never do if it was in front of you and you were, it was like, right. sign this contract. <laughs> so then you, you're getting people who are like in trouble and, you know, so I think that how do you kind of adjust for like, okay, I want to grow this fast, but realistically I, I can't because the money's not there. And, you know, without being tempted to like, you know, do all of these really kind of shady things like PayPal will give you money for, you know, a percentage back of your sales square will give you money. Like you can get it. Right. But is it worth it? And how do you kind of like deal with or reconcile with yourself the fact that like this growth is going to be slower and that's okay because over time I want to build a business that is not bankrupt that doesn't eventually what it's going to do is harm your personal credit even though they say it's not, it's not building your it business will. credit report. It's not. Right. You know, and I found myself in that situation. It took me way longer to dig out of it than I wanted to. And it felt like a black hole that was like killing my business. But if I had just been okay with slowing down and not racing so fast, but with social media, you're constantly like comparing yourself to other people, to other people's businesses. You know, how do you kind of encourage people that like slow and steady really does, you know, win the race in most of these situations? <laughs> I love that you brought this up. So first of all, I just want to say like cash flow is a conversation that is not had enough. And for any kind of maker business, it's seriously, seriously challenging. And I remember actually when I was like a teenager, I worked in my dad's office one summer and I remember like every 20 minutes he'd walk into the office and ask the secretary, did the mail come? Did the check come today? And I was like, why is he so obsessed with that? And now I've been there. Like I got, oh, yeah. did the check come today? Did the check come today? Like is, and literally like you start comparing like, okay, this is how much money is in the bank account. And like, this is what's got to come out this week. And this is the day the check's supposed to come, but is the check really going to come that day? And like there, it, it's really, I mean, it's a conversation that people don't have enough that like, that's one yeah. of the realities of our business. But I think that then the second conversation is like, it's okay to grow slow. And we are, we're in such a like, if you don't grow really fast, then like, that's it, you're a failure. And that's not true at all. Um, and I think there really has to be this commitment to this kind of slow, steady, organic growth. And for me, one of the things that like, whenever my business has been in trouble, it's because I've forgotten my number one rule, which is put money into savings. <laughs> because sometimes you, money just doesn't come in. Like there's always a cycle in my business that usually starts right before trade show season. And then you go to trade <laughs> shows and you spend all this money. And then it takes you another month after the trade show till you finally start seeing even a little bit of that money come back, which, right. which point all your trade shows are like, come on, pay us for the next one. And you're like, dude, I haven't made any money from the last one yet. So you get kind of into this thing. And so for me, like I had to just be like, okay, let's stop and slow down and get mm -hmm. back to basics. And like basic rule number one <laughs> is like, automate savings. And so now what I've started to do is like, if I see a big opportunity coming up on the horizon, so I'm applying to this big holiday market, whether I get in or not, I don't know. I, I have no idea. I applied last year and I didn't get in. I'll just be honest. Um, but the booth fee is $17,000. What? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a 40-day holiday retail market. Like the average booth makes 100k. So if you can get in, it's worth it. Okay, that's wow. Yeah, though still. Yeah, the number the numbers actually look are are good when you run them. But what city is this in? It's it's in New York. Okay, just checking. Yeah, so I have friends who have done it. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I didn't. I applied last year. I didn't get in. I'm gonna try again this year. Who knows? Um, but one of the things that I did this year is, even though you know I don't know yet if I'm gonna get in, I sat down and I figured out. Okay, this is the day the booth fee is due in September. This is how much money I have to have in my bank account, right? <laughs> in order to make that happen, what is that? How many weeks are there between now and then? And how does that break down per week? And then I automated that to it. I have an online savings account that's different from my regular bank so that I can't see the money when I log into my regular bank account so I can pretend it's not there. So I figured out this is how much money I have to put away every week. And I set up an automatic deduction so that I, it's it's bootstrapping, but it's bootstrapping like ahead of the game. And so that's for me, like really the way that I'm trying to do this now is like, okay, if I if I was borrowing money, like I would borrow it and then I would put the money away. So like this year, I was like, slow down the business, mm-hmm. focus on building up that buffer so that if I then need to make a big expenditure, the money is there instead of – because I've done exactly what you've done. Oh, like I need to do this trade show. Let's borrow some money. <laughs> like my the first time I moved into Accent on Design, I took a way bigger booth than I should have. It cost me $10,000 to do that show. And I didn't have any money and I went to my dad and I was like, what do I do? I was really hoping he would loan me the money. And he was like, you call the bank. Like, oh, crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I called the bank. And, and th- this was fortunately, but also sort of unfortunately, you know, my husband and I own our house. So we actually took out a line of credit on our house, which is sort of a ridiculous kind of irresponsible thing to do in one, on one hand. Um, but also the only way that we could get our hands on the money on the other. Um, it took me a long time to pay back that line of credit, like way longer than it should have for that same reason, right? You, right. you take the money and then – and so I think like figuring out how to slow down and, and how are the best ways to self-fund, even if it means growth is a little slower, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think we need to start acknowledging that more. I think that you know there are definitely two – two options but the faster option it really only happens with capital infusion to be honest like the money has to come from somewhere like every time like there's a certain company that I listened to an interview of one of their owners and he says oh we were self-funded the whole way and they make about I think they're at like it's double digit millions annual sales now and it's been like five six years and I'm like there's no way there's no way unless you are rich personally right there right. had to it had to come from somewhere and the fact that people don't talk about that you know like then you see things like shark tank and the profit and like yes you're able to grow quickly when someone is able to bankroll you but if you can't it has to come from somewhere and like last year we got the call from Nordstrom I was ready to say no because we couldn't afford to do it but my parents who believed in me and were so proud of us for getting this order were like no we will take out a home equity line of credit on our house Putting your own house up is one thing. Putting your parents' house up is a whole other story, okay? Like, I felt like the worst person on earth 
thankfully we knew it was short term because it was like we did the numbers and I was able to put all that money back in, you know, by January. But there's other money that I've taken from them, you know, throughout the year. So I'm still I still owe them like 25 K and the one thing about friends and family loans is there are no terms on it so one day and he turns around and he's like hey we need this much money because we have to pay your brother's tuition and you weren't expecting that lump sum but technically like they need it you put their financial like at risk I mean it gets really complicated and really messy so I think that encouraging people that like it's okay to slow down it's okay to not do this just because everybody else is doing this and just talking about it with real transparency on number stuff not in a vague way is like super important for other people who are trying to do this because like otherwise you just constantly feel like a failure you're constantly chasing this carrot that you don't even know how difficult it would be to actually reach and you and then you get like depressed about it Yeah. And I think the other thing too, that we don't talk about enough is like, there's this whole quit your day job, quit your day job, quit your day job, which like, like it's, I've never had a nine to five job. And so like, I fully respect that the, like having a nine to five job and then trying to run your business on the side is really hard, but like no one ever talks about this sort of like, what, like partial employment that can actually be a really good transition point. Hmm. So like I know I have a friend who started a bag company and she worked as an industrial designer. And when, so like she started the company when she still had a full-time job. And then it was at a point where like the company needed more of her energy than, um, than she could commit with her full-time job, but it wasn't making her enough money to like not have another job. So she quit her job and then started waitressing a couple nights a week at a really expensive restaurant. And that was like a nice sort of middle ground. And, you know, for me, I, there were a number of years where I was an adjunct faculty member. I taught one or two classes a semester. And that was just a little bit to like, give me a little bit of a buffer and get me through. And it helped me like self fund when I started. And then eventually I was able to give that up. And, and then at one point, point I think I just I got tired of teaching but I needed a little money and I realized I knew nothing about selling so I went and got a job at J Crew, um, which was literally the smartest thing I could have ever done I'm also a big <laughs> fan of like jobs you can learn from because I was like here I am trying to sell the stores I'm trying to get people to buy my product and I had never worked a sales job I had always worked food service well trying to sell someone a milkshake is very different than trying to sell someone a $300 necklace. So right. I wanted something that like, yes, was going to make me a little money, but was also going to give me a skill that I knew was holding my business back. And so by doing that job and, and, you know, J crew, they were really good about like, they actually train your sales staff. They talk to you. I started to understand some of the retail language and all of that made me such a stronger seller than you know, if I hadn't had that job and it was just a little bit of extra cash. I only worked a couple days a week. It wasn't like a huge thing, but it's sort of like, it took a little bit of pressure off the business and I learned a really valuable skill. So I think that's the other thing that we don't talk about. You know, I don't have any of those part-time jobs now. Like it's just my business, but I don't think we talk about that enough that like there are alternatives between Mm -hmm. like the full on nine to five and like 100% self-employed. And those alternatives can actually be good for your business if you use them strategically. Right. There's a story that like I think Barbara Corcoran tells where she had I don't even know how many like five or six employees and she realized that she had to go get a job and she kept the employees 
and and kept the business going and got a job. I forget what she I think she got a job as like a waitress. I mean, I've definitely had yeah. moments where I've thought about it. I think that for me, where 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 the where my business is right now, I definitely didn't I don't need to have two employees. I could just have one and probably be fine. Um or I could have them both go down to 20 hours a week and we would probably still be okay. But that's unfair to them at this point right now because they don't have other jobs. And for me to just say, hey, like payroll is super expensive. I need you to cut your hours by half. Are you cool? Okay, bye. Like, but at the same time, for me, it's worth it because I recognized in myself my general propensity for like procrastination and laziness (laughs) and that I wasn't getting as much done as if I was paying someone to do it, right? Like, I'm able to get more done. We're able to still have money coming in. Why? Because I have an employee who's constantly emailing and harassing, not harassing, but constantly emailing our wholesale accounts, constantly following up, making sure none of the emails slip through the cracks. When everything was coming to my email address, so many things slipped through the cracks. I forgot to respond to so many people. How much missed money was that? Because I just didn't have the time because I'm also making the product. I'm also shipping everything out. I'm also dealing with all of our books, doing the marketing, doing the Instagram, taking all the pictures. Okay, it has to like eventually you have to realize you can't you can't do it all yourself. So sometimes when you do hire a production assistant or an intern or someone like that, they do really pay for themselves if you know what you're doing, you know how much you're paying them, and you know how to maximize their time. It can be really worth it because you will be able to get more done. More sales will come in because you're able to respond to emails, do sales and marketing and all that stuff if you're not also just like stuck in the studio making things all day. Right. And I think the other thing too that like is the flip side of that is like this all comes back to the pricing thing. So if you have to put in, like if you personally need to put in like 60 hours a week of production time and you're not, and like the amount of money that you get for that 60 hours a week is not enough to hire someone, Mm -hmm. then that means that it's not enough for you. Like your prices are too low. And I see this with people all the time. You know, for me, like I don't, I want to make sure that I can hit the numbers that I need to hit without maxing out my weekly production schedule. Like even when I had my employee, she was 30 hours a week. And now like I'm set up that like, I'm like, I want to be able to make as much money as I need to make on like maybe 15, 20 production hours a week. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And like, I realized that that sounds sort of crazy because that's the main focus of my business. But that means that my pricing is where it needs to be so that all of that other stuff can get done. And that's to me is like the biggest check-in on your pricing is like people are like, oh, like I'm making all the time but and I really need an employee, but I can't afford to hire an employee. <laughs> like then there's something wrong in your numbers. Right, like right. Something's gotta shift there. Right. Um but I agree with you. Being able to bring someone in really helps like generate new business because it frees up more of your time. I forget which creative live course it is of yours, because I think I've taken them all. <laughs> um <laughs> Even though a good portion of that does overlap, there's a lot of repeating information. But no, no, it's fine. Um, But the one, do you remember which one it is where you calculate like your max out production for like the year or like working backwards from I want to make this much money, which means I need to sell this much, which means I would need to make this much like per week. How many hours of like work is that like per units sold per week or whatever it is and and doing that reverse calculation, then realizing like, oh, okay. This is more time 
Like you can't add more hours to the day. Right. This is actually impossible or possible depending, right? In my case, we were all good. Everything was good because I've done Megan Almond's calculations backwards and forwards three different times. (laughs) So, you know, hopefully things are okay. But, you know, realizing like, oh, this is going to take 60 hours of labor per week to sell this much product or to have that much product to sell, right? Right. If I wanted to meet those goals, realizing that's not possible for one person. So then in that case, you have to bring someone else on because you physically can't do it or, you know, whatever. So anyway, I think it was very, very interesting. If I could remember which course it was, I don't know if you remember which one it was. It was either in make a living selling what you make, or it might have been in the revenue planning class. We might have done two different versions of it. Okay. Um, I always, I always find with those that like everyone's brain processes a little differently. So like we might've done one version in that class and then I gave a different version. <laughs> like if it didn't stick there, we're right. going to make it stick here. I think that one uh, might've been make a living selling what you make because the calculations yeah. were reversed from like, I want to make this much money, right. which if my profit margins are this means I actually need to sell this much money, which means working backwards. And then, and then she goes through all the steps, guys, you really should just buy the class. Yeah. And I, and I know it was a kind of a big aha for a lot of people in in the make a living selling what you make class, because we ran these numbers of like, right. If you want, if you personally want to take home like $40,000 next year, then you start (laughs) running these numbers. We start running these numbers and you're like, Oh, oh, actually then my business needs to make $200,000. Like that's and that was really scary for people. Right. But I, I think it's so important to do that math because we're not, you know, what we're doing costs money to produce. It's not, we're not dealing with like pixel, invisible pixels in the air. We're dealing with physical goods that cost money to produce. Right. Plus then all of the other operating costs. So right. really, you know, here's the thing. It's kind of fun to like live in denial for a while, but <laughs> then it's not. And then you have to wake up and be like, oh, either I'm not making money or right. <laughs> like I can't, you know, pay the bills. And for me, like there's always been this thing of like, uh, like we need my money. Like I am married, but we can't live on my husband's income alone. And mm-hmm. so it's like, oh, I either make this work or I get a real job and I don't know how to have a real job. Right. <laughs> um, I see. I like, I seriously don't. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm, unemplo- <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm unemployable. Um, and my biggest nightmare is having to show up at the same place at the same time every single day. Um, so, like, that's a pretty powerful motivator. But you got to know the numbers to make it right. work. And I also like to let people know that, like, I personally, you know, I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't have a house. There are a lot of responsibilities or risks that I can take personally in the business because no one else is really counting on me. I'm okay right now that I don't have a place like that's my own, like that I'm just renting a room in, you know, someone's house. And and I'm I'm okay taking that risk for a certain amount of time. If you're trying to start a business and you have a husband and two kids and that your just your risk averseness is gonna be very mm-hmm. different and don't feel bad about that. Like don't feel like, oh, that, you know, I need to work 40 hours a week on my business. But like, you're a mom, like it and you have I, and there's nothing wrong with that. And that that in itself, I have no idea how much work that is. I have some idea, but not no idea, like but but not 100 percent of an idea. Um, it, it's very different. And everybody's not only the stage of their business is different, but their lifestyle is different. And the choices that they've made for their business 
is different for everyone, you know? So I think that one of the reasons why I started this podcast, I think what you said about the pixels thing was really funny because <laughs> so many of the podcasts that I was, I started the podcast because there wasn't a podcast that I wanted to listen to in the studio very regularly that felt like it really directly spoke to what I was dealing with because so many the word like creative entrepreneur has started to become more used in the space of like graphic designers and people who are not selling physical goods but who are more selling a service photographers graphic designers mm -hmm. consultants that kind of thing which there's nothing wrong with but the challenges that you face when you are making physical products and having to sell them and ship them and market them and pay to make them you know they're completely different challenges and and it's much more I'm not going to say more difficult that's totally undermining what other people do for a living but like right. it's different it's very different it's it's different and it's hard and nobody you know like I feel like this podcast is kind of going to start to just be a downer that people don't want to listen to because I'm just like <laughs> guys it sucks I have no money it's horrible but no like I just want people to know what it's really like and that it doesn't look like our Instagram accounts it it doesn't you know right. it's not all rainbows and like but at the same time, like, you wouldn't do anything else, right? Like, you said, you feel like you're unemployable. Like, this has to work. For me, <laughs> I definitely had a job before. I definitely could work in marketing if I wanted to, but I don't want to. You know, I want this to work. So I think I'm so, I'm so glad yeah. you're willing to, like, be so honest with our audience and that I hope our audience doesn't feel like this podcast is just incredibly depressing. <laughs> no, <laughs> but hopefully actually, it just like, rings can, true for people. <laughs> Yeah, well, and actually, like, we can, we can end on a not so depressing note. So, like, yeah, some months, like, I don't, you don't make money, and it's really hard, but, like, there was a couple of years ago, I was, I went to speak at a, at the SNAG conference, which is the Society of North American Goldsmiths, and um, I was over Memorial Day weekend, and my husband was at a picnic with his family, and um, his aunt was like, oh, so, like, Megan's at a conference, like, does she actually make any money, because all you hear about is, like, the starving artist thing, and my husband just looked at her, and he goes, she makes more money a year than I do. <laughs> and um, so like some months it sucks and you don't make any money. But then like some months I make a lot more money than my husband. And some months I pay all of our bills. So right. um, it's it's not – it's hard, but it's not impossible. And I think that's important to keep in mind too. Right. I think that it, it – when I first started to like really look forward and take the business seriously and one of my mentors, which – I found through oh, – I'm totally forgetting the acronym – SCORE. Right. Yeah. SCORE is a mentorship program. Nationally, it's a nonprofit. We'll hook you up with someone in your area. The first time I met this guy, older, retired gentleman, like he kind of was very impressed with me. But at the same time, like, are you a little crazy? Like – because I, you, you're very ambitious, right? He was like, your goals are kind of like slightly audacious. And I was like, um – I don't think so. So he when I ha I had a meeting with him before we were going to go pitch to Nordstrom, which we did at this Etsy event that we got chosen for and blah, blah, blah. And I was telling him like, oh, yeah, we're going to go do this thing and we're going to pitch to them and it might work out. It might not. And he was like, you'll never get into Nordstrom. Not like never, ever. He just meant like right now, like that would be crazy. That's not going to happen. And then, like, two months later, I'm like, so we got into Nordstrom. I need to talk to you about, like, financing and stuff. And he was just, like, so confused or, like, you know, I talked to him about the internet and he seemed very confused. Um, <laughs> but 
But one thing he said to me that I found like was was very, very helpful was he was talking about like, okay, well, if you're ever going to go to the bank, like you're going to they're going to need to see projections. And I had no idea how to do projections because projections felt like lying. Because I have no idea what's going to actually happen. And it just felt like, how could you possibly make some like blanket estimation but as I started to do them, and I think it does help once you've gone through the whole year cycle with wholesale right. as your primary, you know, revenue driver, because you do know, you start to know where those valleys are. And, and the, my mistake this past year was I knew where they were and they were accurately predicted from our projections. And yet I still didn't really save for those valleys. That was my bad. Um, so, you know, you're running through one month where you're like scraping the, you know, buy, and then the next month it's like, everything's fine and it's great. So, um, but we started to treat our projections. Like I did a rough outline of the year, but now we treat them as goals, right? Like every month we check in, have we hit this as a goal yet? And if we were under why, or, you know, all these things. So like doing those things and looking at, look at last year's sales month by month, what was here? What conference? Like, what trade shows did you do? What retail shows? Did you have a sale on your website? Like, all of that information. And then look forward to the next year. Do you want to double that? Do you, you want to 1.5 it or whatever it is? And then just go with those as rough numbers, knowing where you have like bigger events and certain things. And it's pretty easy and it's surprisingly accurate. <laughs> I was so scared to do it because I was like, I have no idea. Like, this just feels like throwing numbers out in the air. But then when I looked back, I was like, oh, no, we actually did that. And then we, like, exceeded that goal. That was cool. Okay, on to next year. Like, it's very interesting. But um, if you really set those high goals, and I know what our revenue goal is for this year, but I also know what our, like, Meg the number Megan told me to, like, <laughs> throw out there as, like, a big, scary you know, annual revenue goal. And I know what it is and it's really high, but I think that, you know, five years, no problem. We'll, we'll hit it. Yeah. You keep, you keep working on it. And I think the other thing that's important too, is like sometimes like for me this year, actually like my overall revenue goal is not really any higher than last year, mm -hmm. but my goal for my profit margin is, right. hi is higher this year. So keeping in mind that too, is like, you know, are we, yeah, I'm bringing in more money, but am I bringing in more money and actually making more money is right. the other piece that's so important to keep an eye on. And so this year I'm like, okay, it's all like revenue is awesome. I'm all about the profit margin this year. Yeah. As we, as we kind of grow and I know we had to bring on, we're having to bring on more sales reps. Um, mm -hmm. I've had to do some things to really like shore up our margins to take that hit. So that meant changing one of our you know packaging choices to make this you know just much more profitable and one of the ones that like I'm not really able to make changes on it's gonna be a little tough so I think that you know I don't know what we're gonna do either we're gonna have to find another supplier or simply just know and like let everybody know we're pushing this one this middle one that's like gonna make us more money than this one don't be so like aggressive on it we're going to go broke if we keep selling only this one. So I think knowing kind of where you're at and kind of like what you should, what you're okay with like selling more at, what you can give a discount on, when can you run a sale on it because you have the margin to run a sale, like that kind of stuff. You're able to really like, yes, make not just your revenue increased, but your overall profitability 
you know, increase. Yeah. I think that's so important too, to think about like, if you, you know, if you make $50 on your website, like it's not the $50 isn't even like if I sell, I mean, most of my stuff is higher. So like, let's just say like I sell, you know, a $90 necklace, like mm-hmm. that's not the same amount of money as if I sell a $90 pair of earrings, you know, the $90 pair of earrings is a higher profit margin because there's less labor and less material costs. And so, you know, then if you know that and like, okay, maybe this year I like put a little more effort into selling earrings, like maybe right. I just, la- you know, launched a- some new earrings or something. So really thinking about in terms of like what you want, right, like what you want to push or what you want your sales reps to push or what you want your stores to push and like thinking about that in a really like smart and strategic way because, you know, when it comes down to it, like those little, like little fluctuations in profit margin can make a huge difference. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I feel like this is probably our longest podcast ever, but maybe we'll edit it down <laughs> to something, but we will definitely have to have you on again soon I'm sure like our listeners will have lots of questions and I mean what do I know I don't even know if anyone listens to this show okay so uh, and I'll have to share the results of my uh, summer off from trade show grand experiment so I'm really excited about this video thing because I really do think based on like the way that you sell it could be just as great as you know going to a show and and super educational you know for your customers and everything well, thank yeah, you so much. fun to do. Yeah. Thank you so it much, Megan, for your time and for joining me today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Bye. Thanks for listening to episode seven of From Maker to Manufacturing. I'm your host, Sarah Cooley. I hope you enjoyed today's guest, Megan Amon. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Cooley. And you can check out my business and the place where I probably spend the most time on the internet on Instagram at Simply Curated. Thank you so much for listening. You can check out past episodes of the show on FromMakerToManufacturing.com. And please subscribe in iTunes if you haven't had a chance to already. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.